Good morning. It is uh, so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. As you may make your way back to see, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. Um, and let's go to the Lord in prayer as we open up His Word. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for today. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Well, thank you for the unwavering hope that we have, the certainty that we have in you, Lord Jesus, the price that you've paid, the life that you've accomplished for us, and the victory you've achieved. That life and that victory is now ours because of you. And Lord, as we open up your word, um, can you help us to understand? Can you help us to see? Can you help us to hear? Lord, can you stir our hearts? Can you help this not just to be head knowledge, but Lord, can it convict us? Can it direct us? Can it encourage us? Um, Lord, can you help us to look to you? Can you help us to trust in you? Lord, if there's any sin in our lives that we need to confess, can you bring it out through your word? Can you expose it for what it is? And Lord, can you help us to lay it at the cross knowing that it's been paid for in full? Lord, for those that are here that might find themselves weary and discouraged, can you encourage their hearts? Can you help them to trust in you and look to you? So, Lord, as we come to your word, can you speak to us? Can your spirit illuminate truth to us? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, and so in our text today, in chapter 15, Paul is going to continue to address the last major issue that the church in Corinth was struggling with. Um, it appears that there were certain members in the church of Corinth that did not believe that God would physically resurrect the bodies of believers. And, and so last week, Paul kind of started off addressing the issue indirectly. And really what he did is he kind of laid down the foundation that Christ's resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. And so he reminded the church of the message that he preached to them. He reminded the church of the message that they've heard, understood, and accepted to be true, the message that they must continually stand on, the message that, that, that they must hold on to and by which they're being saved. And the message that he said to them, what he told them is that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that Christ was raised on the third day according to the scripture, and that he appeared to many people. And Paul even said, some of the people are even alive today, go and ask them. And so that was the kind of the foundation that he laid down for them. So now Paul, in verse 12, is going to directly address the issue. And Paul starts off with arguing, if God does not raise the dead, then Christ has not been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, there are some terrible consequences that follow. However, he's going to show us that Christ has been raised, and we can know that God has raised Christ, and all those who belong to Christ will be raised with him, and that is evidence that God has destroyed death. And then he's going to, then we're going to end um, our time here with three commands he gives us, and that's going to be our time of response. So let, let's look at our text in verse 12 as Paul directly addresses the issue. He says this, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. So is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And those, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So, so in verse 12, here's the main issue. The main issue is not that these Christians are denying the resurrection of Christ, but rather they're denying that God is going to raise up the body of believers. And this idea, and this is how it more than likely how it came about, and this is again how that this church got influenced by their culture just like we get influenced by our culture. Uh, because in the ancient world, especially in the Greco-Roman world, the idea of the resurrection of a human corpse was revolting. Because in their mind, their, kind of their, their philosophy, philosophy and what they believed is they believed that the body, anything physical, anything material is evil and anything spiritual, non-material is good. And since the body is physical, since the body is material, it is evil, it's decaying, it's not good, it's not worth raising from the dead, but what is important is not the body, but rather the soul. The soul is immaterial, the soul in a sense is spiritual, the soul is immortal. And so they kind of use that kind of train of thought to justify certain, certain behaviors. For, for example, if the body, which is decaying and the body is evil, then why take care of it? Why protect it? So they use that kind of train of thought to justify sexual immorality, to justify drunkenness, to justify gluttony. Because the body's decaying, so why take care of it? Why, if, if sexual sin is just a physical thing, we know that the church struggled with sexual sin, and this is where their chain of thought came. Like, why is it even necessary for God to raise the dead? Because the body is evil. And again, this is how the culture influenced these first century Corinthians and how they looked at the body. They saw it as immaterial. They saw it as, as evil, and there's, there's really no point of God raising the dead. And really, unfortunately, they were using that kind of train of thought, that philosophy to justify their sinful behaviors. And here's what Paul is doing. You see, in the previous passage, he's already established that since Christ is proclaimed as being raised from the dead, and the Corinthians have heard it, and the Corinthians have accepted it to be true, 
then Paul says, how can you say, if you believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can you say that God is not going to raise the dead? How can you say that? It's almost it's illogical for the Corinthians to accept the resurrection of Christ and then to deny the resurrection of the physical body of believers. And really what the Corinthians did not understand and what Paul is trying to show them is the correlation between Christ's resurrection and the physical resurrection of the body of believers. To deny the one is to deny the other. You can't have the one without the other. So if you're taking notes, like this is the very first argument that, 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 that Paul is making, that, that Paul is trying to convey to the church in Corinth, is this, to deny the resurrection of believers is to deny the resurrection of Christ. Like that is what he wants them to understand, and I don't think they understood this. To deny the resurrection of believers is to deny the resurrection of Christ. You can't say God has raised Christ from the dead but God will not raise the body of believers. And then Paul says, here's some terrible consequences if Christ has not been raised. Several, uh, seven terrible consequences if Christ has not been raised from the dead. The first thing that Paul says, he turns to himself. If God has not raised Christ from the dead, here's the very first horrible consequences. My preaching is in vain. In other words, what he is saying is Paul's preaching is devoid of any intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. His preaching is completely empty and useless and worthless. It's almost like a musical instrument that plays no distinct sound. And he says, if my preaching is in vain, the second terrible consequence if God has not raised Christ from the dead is that your faith is in vain. What you are believing is useless. What you are believing is empty. It's worthless. There's no point in it. And Paul says, like another reason, third reason for the consequences if God has not raised Christ from the dead. My, Paul says, my preaching is a misrepresentation of God. In other words, I am telling you something that God did, but God did not really do it. What happens to people that misrepresent God? What do you think God's going to do? God is going to severely judge him. God is going to severely punish him. He says, if that's true, I'm saying God did something, but he really didn't do it. That means I am storing up wrath for myself. And then he continues. He says, your faith, the fifth reason, he says, if Christ, God has not raised Christ from the dead, your faith is worthless. It's empty. It's unfruitful. There's no power in it because there's no truth in it whatsoever. And if you have no faith and it's worthless, then he says, you are still in your sins. In other words, there's no salvation. The wrath of God still hangs, hangs over you. Your debt has not been paid. That means you still have to pay your own debt against God. You still have to face punishment for all of your sins. You're still in your sins. You're still in the bondages of your sins. There is no life after death for you. There's no victory. There is no hope. If, in fact, God has not raised Christ from the dead. And then he says the sixth reason is this. And then the believers who have died have perished. Um, that word perish means they are now under eternal condemnation. 
all the loved ones, all the ones that you thought that, that Christ has saved, who have trusted Christ, they are now under eternal condemnation. And then the last one, he says, if God has not raised Christ from the dead, then we, in verse 19, we should be pitied more than anyone. Christians, believers who believed in the resurrection, who trusted in Christ, if God has not raised Christ from the dead, we should be pitied more than anyone. Why? Because what we have believed, what we have trusted in, what we've put our hope in is a giant lie. It's like people practicing false religion. Our hearts should be breaking for them because what they're doing is worthless. It's fruitless. It's powerless. It's an entire lie that they're devoting their entire life to thinking it will save them. And only at the end of their life they realize all of their sacrifices, all of their discipline, all of their practices came to nothing. It was meaningless. We should be pitied. In other words, people should look at us with sympathy as they look at our pathetic, miserable, pitiable condition. So here's Paul's point that he's making. Paul's point in in showing us all the horrible consequences if if Christ has not been raised from the dead. The point really he's making is to show us, if you're taking notes, that the resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. It's essential. In other words, you take the resurrection out of the Christian faith, all of those consequences occur. So then I can say my preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, I'm storing up wrath against God because I'm saying something that God did but he really did not do. You're continuing in your sin. What you're believing is a lie. There's no hope, no salvation, and people should look at you and just feel sorry for you. Why? Because you're coming Sunday in, Sunday out, devoting your life of serving Christ, and it's all a lie. Like, religion is a crummy hobby. Go buy a boat, you'll have way more fun. Go to a football game, you'll have way more fun than coming and gathering and singing lies and talking about lies and patting one another back. It's all one giant lie. That is Paul's point. The resurrection is essential to the faith. In other words, in order to be a Christian, you must believe in the resurrection. That God has raised Christ from the dead. Because without the resurrection, everything is worthless and hopeless and meaningless. Now Paul is going to turn and show us the implications of the resurrection. And since we know that Christ has been raised, here is what we can know with certainty. Let's let's look at verse 20. It It says this, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Um, Notice the word first fruits. It's going to be mentioned twice. We're going to talk about it. Verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, there's that word again, Afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it's obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. 
When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. If you're taking notes, here's the very first implication of the resurrection. And this is what Paul says um, in verse 20. Since Christ has been resurrected, if that is true, and Paul says we know that it is true, this is what it means to us. God will resurrect those who belong to Christ. So the very first implication of the resurrection for us is that God will resurrect those who belong to, to Christ. So if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you will be resurrected, which means death is not your end. Will you experience death? Yes, but it's not your end. Why? Because God will resurrect you to life because you belong to Christ. That's the very first implication. So how do we know this? You're like, oh, that's a nice truth. How do we know this? Well, notice what Paul says. What does Paul call Christ? He, what's the word I told you to underline? He calls Christ the first fruits. Very good. The first fruits are the season's first agricultural produce, signaling that a full harvest is about to come. For example, uh, some of you might have planted a veggie garden this year, and you planted a bunch of tomatoes. And when you get your first tomato that is ripe, that is called your first fruits. And what does that signal? More tomatoes are about to come. If your tomatoes didn't turn, turn uh, red and they were all dying, what did it signal? No harvest. So the first fruit is exciting because you're like, yes, this plant has taken root. This plant is producing fruit. It is going to produce a bountiful harvest of tomatoes, and I'm going to eat so many tomatoes and try to give it to friends that all of them are going to run away from me because there are so many tomatoes. And this idea of first fruit is throughout Scripture. You'll hear the word and read the word first fruits. When God's people under the old covenant dedicated the first fruits of the harvest, the barley or the wheat, what they did is they trusted the Lord with the first fruits and expecting that God is going to provide for the rest of the harvest. Paul even uses this and later on in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 15 where he, he, he's saying when he evangelized in southern Greece, his first fruits was the household of Stephanus. And what did that indicate? He was the first convert and it indicated that there will be more converts to follow. And that's this idea. By calling Christ the first fruits, he's saying those who died, Christ is the long train of those who died that will be resurrected because Christ himself has been resurrected from the dead. Which means all those who have fallen asleep, it's a euphemism for saying they're dead. They're not literally sleeping. They are dead. Will not remain dead. Why? Because Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. His resurrection is a signal that there's a long waiting list of Christians who will be resurrected from the dead. And so another question that might follow, if Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection, why is Christ the first fruit of, of, of dead believers? Uh, look at verse 21. He says this, For since death came through a man, 
The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You're like, what does that mean? Real simple. How did death come into the world? What happened? Who sinned? Adam. Adam sinned, and as a result, death came in with it. But how did resurrection of the dead come along? Because of Jesus. So as death came through Adam, life came through Christ. In other words, just as all died because all of us belong to Adam, in a, one, in a sense, Adam is our representative. His sin has become now our sin. In other words, this is why we have a sinful nature. We're born into sin, born with a sinful nature, born into the bondages of sin, all because of Adam, who is our human representative. He rebelled against God, and as a result, sin has entered into the world. And I know most people's uh, argument against that is like, well, that's unfair. Like, I did not make Adam my representative. Why am I supposed to pay for the sins of one man? And here's the irony, that very question that you're bringing up is a rebellion against God because what you're telling God is, God, you are unjust. Thus, you're proving that you are an heir of Adam. You are sinful. But Christ comes and becomes our new representative. But here's the irony. Has anybody asked Christ to become your representative? No. God took the initiative and said, I'm going to send my son who will represent a new humanity. And just like all of us are under sin because of Adam's sin, all of us will experience life because of what Christ has done. For those who are trusting in him. And so since Christ becomes our new representative, and this is how we know that, that, that we will be resurrected from the dead because Christ has been raised from the dead. He is our new representative. We now have life in him because of what he has done. In other words, what that means is like his victory is your victory. Just like Adam's sin is your sin because he was your representative, so Christ's victory is our victory. Because Christ is our new representative. And this is why Paul calls him the first fruit of all believers. All those who are in Christ have experienced victory because Christ has accomplished victory. All of those who are in Christ will be resurrected from the dead because Christ himself was resurrected from the dead. And when will all of this life happen? Look at verse 23. But each... In his own order. Christ the first fruits, that's the resurrection. Afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. In other words, when will the resurrection happen for the dead of believers? When Christ returns. So, in other words, there's this gap the gap between his resurrection slash ascension and our resurrection. And we live right in between that gap. And what happens when Christ returns? Look at verse 24. Then comes the end. 
In other words, when that period of waiting is over, when Christ returns, and then when He returns, He will hand over the kingdom of God the Father when He abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He puts all of His enemies under His feet. So in other words, when Christ returns and He makes all things new and He raises us up from the dead, all the authority, all the power he, in the kingdom, He hands back over to God who gave it to Him so that God can be all and all. But in the meantime, what's happening in the gap? Is King Jesus just waiting? No, King Jesus is ruling. King Jesus is reigning. Look at verse 25. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. In other words, what's Jesus doing right now? Putting all of his enemies under his feet. What does that mean? What does it mean to put all your enemies under your feet? You can just think about the imagery. When you stand victorious of your enemy and they're pinned down with your foot. In other words, they're defeated. They're done. They tap out. And the king stands victorious. And that, that, that's the idea. Like, and think about how encouraging it should be. Because for us right now, we're frustrated because we live in the gap. We live in between crisis, a resurrection, and crisis return. And we're waiting for our resurrection. But what's happening? Pain. Sorrow. A little bit of victories. A little bit of pain. More pain than victories. And yet, what's happening right now? Christ is ruling. Christ is reigning. He is subjecting all authority, all power under his feet. We might not see it. We might not at times believe it because it looks like the world is just in chaos erupting. And yet, Christ is going to return when all of his enemies are put under his feet. And he destroys all power, all authority, all rule. And he wraps up the kingdom and he gives it back to the Father. Here's the, um, the second implication of the resurrection. If the first implication of Christ's resurrection is that all those who are in Christ will be resurrected, the second one, if you're taking notes, is, that, is this, is that God will destroy death by raising dead believers. Notice um, in our passage, who's the last enemy to be destroyed? Look at verse 26. The last enemy uh, uh, to be abolished is, is death, okay? The last enemy to be abolished, I love that word abolish, annihilate, destroy, not existed, is death. How is God going to abolish death? Here's how. By raising up dead believers, how do, how do you defeat death? How do you destroy death? Not by cheating it, by allowing death to take over and disarming the power of death by raising people to life. How did Christ defeat death? God raised Christ up to life. How will, how will God abolish death? By raising us up in the resurrection. So in other words, death right now <clears throat> feels like it's winning. Because here's the reality. What are all of us experience, going to experience? You're going to experience death. Like one out of one people die. Each and every one of you are going to bury somebody you love. Whether it's a spouse. Whether it's a parent. Unfortunately, even some of you might even bury whether it is a child. That is the reality 
of it. And as sad as it is, Every time we experience death, all of us know we're going to die. We know we're going to bury somebody. And yet when it happens, what's your very first initial reaction? Not me. I didn't think it would ever happen to me. And yet I knew it was going to happen to me. But it's like, I can't believe it's happened to me. Because it's a reminder that death is not natural. Like death, as natural as we try to make it, it's not That's why it shocks us every time. Like, you know you're going to die. You know you're going to bury somebody, and yet it happens. Why are you shocked? Because death is unnatural. And we grieve, and we mourn, and it is sad, and it is heartbreaking. And yet as Christians, even in our grief, even in our mourn, even in our sadness, we have hope. Why? Because death is not the end. There is certainty that death is going to be abolished because death has already been defeated. And how do I know death has been defeated? Because God has raised Christ from the dead. And if he has raised Christ from the dead, that means he's going to raise me up in the last day. And if he's going to raise me up in the last day, he is going to abolish death. And when he does, Paul says later on in chapter 15, then we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Death has been swallowed up because God will resurrect all of those who are in Christ. And this is why we can cry and we can be really sad when we bury somebody we love but we can always have hope if they are in Christ because death is not the end for them. Eternal life is awaiting when God will raise them up in the last day. Now, Paul um, transitions from the resurrection of Christ to the resurrection of the believers. And he says, look, if God does not raise the dead, then really what some of you guys are doing is just absurd. It makes no sense. Look at verse, verse 29. And then we'll wrap it up with, um, with, with a response. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? If I face death every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought while beast in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For some people are ignorant about God. And I say this to your shame. Notice the if uh, statements. The first one is this. In other words, he's saying, look, if the resurrection of the dead is not going to happen, if the dead are not raised at all, then the first one is, is, then why are people baptized for them? In other words, he's saying, like, if God does not raise the dead, then it is absurd for people to be baptized on behalf of the dead. Now, I know all of you are like, wait, did he just say people getting baptized on behalf of the dead? Like, like what in the world does that mean? Real quick here. What does it mean? I have no idea. Okay? We don't know what it means, but we certainly can tell you what it does not mean. Okay? Because if it did mean that, Paul would condemn it. Here's what it does not mean, and we can say that with certainty. 
It does not mean that some Christians got baptized on behalf of dead non-Christians in hopes that God would accept them. In other words, like, 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 that's not what it means. So let's say, for example, your, your husband died and he's not a believer, and then you're getting baptized in hopes that God would see your effort and your actions, and God would accept your husband who is dead because of your effort and your actions. Is that the gospel? No. God accepts us based on what? Whose actions? Ours? Our family members? No. Christ's actions. That's not what it means. If it meant that, Paul would have condemned it. But Paul doesn't condemn it, nor does he commend it, so now we can only guess what it means. Um, Here's just an educated guess. More than likely, I think, it could mean this, that maybe there were a small number of Christians who got baptized on behalf of family members who were Christians, but they never had the opportunity to get baptized. They died during persecution before they could get baptized. Uh, maybe this analogy will help you. Um, football, yes, great, great season. Praise the Lord. Um, when you are on a team, what do you get? You get a jersey and you get a number. Um, when you're a senior and you move on from college football at senior uh, day, what do they do? They present you with the jersey, your mom and dad shows up with you, there's all these signatures, and it is a sign that you were on that team. Baptism, does baptism save you? No. Jesus saves you. But what's baptism in a sense? It is a sign that you're putting on that jersey and that you are on Team Jesus. Okay? We're on Team Jesus right now. And baptism was that ceremony of us giving you your jersey publicly, and we're saying, yes, Jesus has saved you. We've affirmed that. We're trusting in, you, and trusting in Jesus, and we're praising the Lord and celebrating with you that you are on Team Jesus. But just like sometimes even in our culture, when a football player unexpectedly dies before they can even make the team, what, what would that team sometimes do? They would bring the parents, they would bring the family and friends up, and they would present them with a jersey saying, even though your son might have not had the opportunity to play for us, they were on the team before they could take a snap. And so here is the jersey, an honor of your deceased son. So more than likely, these people were honoring those who surrendered their lives to Christ, but they never had the opportunity to put that jersey on. And so they're doing it on behalf of, of, of these people, putting their jerseys on, saying, yes, the Lord has saved them. And we're remembering the life that they've lived, that they were on Team Jesus, even though they never had the opportunity to put on that jersey. Paul doesn't commend them, saying keep doing it, nor does he condemn them, saying it is wrong. He's only saying, if if God does not raise us from the dead, then this whole ceremony with the jersey makes no sense. It's absurd. Stop doing it. Here's the second one he, he does. Hopefully everybody understands that. The second one in verses 30 to 32, he says, if God does not resurrect believers, then that, what's the point of him enduring constant physical danger? Like he's like, like, why am I wrestling wild beasts? And I don't think it was actual wild beasts. I think it was people compared to beasts and how they're treating him. He's like, why am I constantly in danger? 
Like it makes no sense for me to endure hardships to preach the gospel if there's no resurrection of the dead. Because again, what was the first main point that, that Paul made? To deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of Christ. You can't deny one and not have the other. Because Christ is the first fruits. His resurrection is a sign that all of us who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. And that is how he des destroys and abolishes death by raising us from the dead. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead for believers, why am I doing this? He, he uses this phrase. He, uh, he says, why do I not just eat and drink for tomorrow I die? And I was, why don't I just indulge myself and do whatever good, feels good to me? Because tomorrow I'm going to die anyway. Why go through all of this, this hardship? Here's application. You're like, okay. So if we know this is true, to deny the resurrection of Christ is to deny the resurrection of the body of believers. The first implication of the resurrection of Christ is that, is what? The first implication of the resurrection of Christ, I just struck a blank, sorry. Is, is that God will resurrect those who belong to Christ. The second one is God will destroy death by resurrecting us up. If that is true, what does that mean for us? What's the application here? Look, look at what he, he does, and it's kind of mean, but let, let's try not make it so mean for us. He says, the first one is, verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. So I think here's our first application of this text, if you're taking notes. Do not be deceived. Um, for the Corinthians, he's telling them, don't be deceived by those who are denying the resurrection of the dead. And he, he, and he, he quotes a Greek poet where he says, look, bad company ruins or corrupt good morals or good character." Now, for us, maybe we've not been deceived by people spreading the lie that God will not resurrect the dead. But certainly for some of us, or all of us, there's a possibility that we could possibly be deceived because of false teachings or false doctrine. And so the very first thing that, that, that we need to do is we need to not be deceived by these things. Like, there is constantly false doctrine spreading around, false beliefs that are spreading around. And here's the problem. Here's what we see in the local church. Is people, Christians, have no idea what they're believing anymore. We're being too easily deceived by doctrines that sound right. They're always, there's always hints of truth in it. They sound right, and they make sense, but they're an outright lie. And one of the things we're going to see in this gap between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return, as the Bible calls it in these last times, which is between His ascension and His return, false teachings will continue to spread. There's never going to be a time where there will no longer be false teachings. And your first application today is do not be deceived by it. Now, practically, you're like, okay, if there's tons of false teachings out there, how am I going to know which is true, which is false? 
Does that mean I have to keep up with every single false teaching there is? No, I think here's an illustration, and it's a common illustration, the illustration of counterfeit money. Um, the U.S. government who, who prints money, uh, especially the department that recognizes counterfeit money, uh, what do they do spending all their energy and all their time on studying? They study the real money. By studying the real money, they know how it feels, how it smells. They know every single marking that is on there. They know the serial numbers and how many numbers should be on that serial number. They know on the little imprint when you hold it into the light what imagery it's supposed to show. They're so dedicated in studying the real thing, but by knowing the real thing, the second they touch counterfeit money, what can they recognize? This is fake. This is counterfeit money. We cannot accept it, but we will take this because this is a violation of the law. And so here's the thing. Do not be deceived. In other words, instead of spending all of your energy and all of your time going down all these rabbit trails and trying to study all these false doctrines, study the real thing. Focus on what the Bible clearly teaches. Do not be deceived. Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? Can you find it in the Bible? Do not be deceived. Which is the second application. Notice what Paul says this in verse 34. First one, he tells them, don't be deceived. Then he says, come to your senses. If you're taking notes, here's the second application. Wake up. Um, come to your senses has this idea of sober up. Get over your hangover. Quit drinking. Wake up. Wake up. False teachings are spreading. You are being deceived because you are not in your senses, not in your right mind. You're drinking a little too much. Wake up. Again, for us, we need to wake up. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it because here's the reality. What we believe and why we believe it impacts how we live our lives. You cannot separate what you believe about God and what you do. They go hand in hand because what you believe about God impacts what you do. And if you know, really want to know what you believe about God, look at your actions. There's surveys over the last two decades uh, among evangelical Christians taken and some of them are trick questions. Uh, some of them, like Jesus, uh, one of the trick questions is, Jesus is fully God, but not fully man. Jesus is fully man, but not fully God. Jesus was not always fully God, but he was fully man. And you're like, which one is, and then the last one, Jesus is fully God, fully man. And you have to pick the option, which one is true? And do you know how many Christians, percentage of evangelical Christians, which means people that go to our churches had that correct? 50%. And there's more tricky questions out there because this is how false doctrine kind of creeps in. It's not an obvious. It's a little half-truth there. Wake up. Do not be deceived. Do you know what you believe? Can you, do you know what the fundamentals are of the Christian faith? If you don't, let me invite you to Wednesday night gospel project. Every, every night we cover a key doctrine of the faith. 
last, last Wednesday, we covered justification by faith. What's justification by faith? You're like, I have no idea. Then come to Gospel Project where we learn that justification by faith is God declaring us to be righteous. On what basis? On the basis of Christ. In other words, by faith meaning I'm believing that what Christ has done for me is sufficient, that God has accepted me of Christ's performance, and because of Christ's performance, I am positionally declared righteous and right standing before God. We even have core classes where there's a whole thing of what is the fundamentals of the faith. Wake up. Because if you're not going to wake up, you are going to be what Paul says in Ephesians, being tossed to and thrown by every winds of doctrine. And if you do not know the fundamentals of your faith and you've been coming for 20 years, how do you think your children are going to know the fundamentals of the faith? That's why they call this the, the great falling away in the church of America. Because we've not been rooted in Scripture. We do not really know what we believe. And the things we're arguing about is silly things. They're not the fundamentals of the faith. Do not be deceived. Wake up. And the last one is the harsh one, but I'll show you what he means by that is stop sinning. In other words, stop sinning by propagating or tolerating false teachings in that case, about the resurrection. And really, here's what we have to understand false doctrine. You know the, the implications of false doctrine? They're really there to, to kind of self-justify our actions. Really. For the Corinthians, it's like, yeah, God's not going to raise the dead body of believers. Oh, okay, that means the body doesn't matter. That means I can sleep with whoever I want to. That means I can eat whatever I want to. I can drink whatever I want to because the body doesn't matter. I can just live licentiously. And when false doctrine comes in, when when it starts sneaking in, what it's trying to do, it's it's trying to self-justify certain actions. It's trying to self-justify that we can continue in our sin because these things aren't really true. The Bible is not really God's Word because there's so many things in God's Word that are so hard and so difficult, so we don't really think it is God's Word. What are you trying to accomplish? You're trying to find a loophole so you can do whatever you want to, however you want to, whenever you want to, and still feel good about yourself. And Paul says, no, to not be deceived, wake up, stop sinning. In other words, stop self-justifying your actions. Because again, what we believe determines what we do and how we live. And if you really want to know what you believe, look at how you're acting. You cannot say you are a Christian and you follow Christ and you're continuing in your sin and you're continuing self-justifying that your sinful actions is okay. No, you don't really believe who God is, that you have sinned against the holy God and that God is righteous and just. And he will punish you for your sins. And this is why you need a Savior. And if you believe that we have such a wonderful Savior, why would you take this gift and just throw it on the floor and just trample all over it as if it doesn't matter. Wouldn't you see this as a wonderful gift? Wouldn't you steward this gift? Because the Son of God took on flesh and walked among this earth and lived a life we could not live and died a death we were supposed to die. 
And he didn't do it because we asked him for it. He didn't do it because we were deserving of it. He did it while we were at war with God, enemies of God, defying God, belittling God. And he did it out of his sheer grace and his own free choice. Took upon our sins. And when we all yelled in the crowd, crucify, crucify, Jesus says, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing or saying. They don't know who I am. And yet God's grace, Jesus, hung on that cross, bared the full wrath of God so that me and you could be saved and not get what we deserve. What a precious gift that is. Why would you put a precious gift on the floor to be trampled by sin? Just like some of you have received special heirlooms, where do you put that? Do you put it on the kitchen countertop where kids can destroy it? No, you put it on the top shelf of the china cabinet because this is a precious crystal that has been passed on for generations to generations. We have received such a wonderful salvation. Let us understand how wonderful it is. Let us understand what it means so that it impacts our actions. And for some of us, stop sinning. Let me pray for us. Lord, Help us not to be deceived by this cunningness of the enemy with false doctrine. Help us to wake up and know what we believe and why we believe it, Lord. And help us to see and understand this wonderful salvation that you have accomplished for us. Let us behold you, Lord Jesus, and see how wonderful and marvelous you are. That you are the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king who rules and reigns superior and all of your enemies will be under your feet and that you are coming back and you will raise us up on the last day and we will rule with you forever and ever because your victory is ours. Lord, what a wonderful privilege we have. Help us to understand it. Help us to meditate upon it. Help us to be grateful for it. And if their sin, the sin of unbelief, the sin of self-justification, Lord, help us to repent of it and turn to you knowing that you have paid for it in full. Help us to wake up. Help us not to be deceived. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.